Merry-Go-Round Storytelling presents Test Valley Tales with Amanda Kane-Smith. Hello, I'm Amanda. Welcome to the Test Valley Tales podcast. This podcast features the stories from my illustrated book called Test Valley Tales. Each week, I'll be telling a traditional story based in a real location in the beautiful borough of Tess Valley, which, if you're not from round here, is in Hampshire, in England, in the UK. All the stories are different, but they are all magical in one way or another. So whether you're curious about strange-looking dragons or magical wish-giving fish, enchanted trees or even spooky ghost legends, I'm sure there'll be a tale here for everyone. And if you're listening locally, I hope you may want to go out and explore the place the story is set and maybe see if you can find some of the things I refer to there. I can't promise you'll meet any of the magical creatures, but... If you do come across any, please say hello from me. Well, I think it's time to get on with this week's tale. So, make yourselves comfortable, and I will set the scene. This tale is probably the most well-known of all the Tess Valley tales, and it's called The Cockatrice of Whirlwell. I love feeding the ducks, rummaging about at home for little treats they might like, popping them in a paper bag and toddling off to the nearest duck pond. The ducks seem to like it too, and there are always a couple of greedy ones who speed across the water or fly in at an alarming angle to gobble it up. I like to throw it to the ones at the back, the slow ones, to make sure they do not miss out. My favourite place to feed the ducks is in Whirlwell, Whirlwell is wonderful. It's such a great place for a wonder, with its little lanes that cross over the river as it makes its way through the village, winding around houses and lapping at the edge of gardens. As you walk along Fullerton Road, you will come across a beautiful wooden bridge which spans the River Test at its widest point in the village. It sweeps round from the road to the cow meadows, as they are called. This bridge is the perfect spot for looking down into the water where you can see huge trout shimmying lazily in unison as the sun shines on the surface of the water that, being a chalk stream, is always cool below. I think ducks must have always lived here. Generations and generations of them. Because many, many years ago, this Tranquil spot was the scene of one of Hampshire's most famous and mysterious legends. The legend of the Whirlwell Cockatrice. It began on a cool spring day about 400 years ago. Thank you.
Doris the duck decided it was time to go back to her nest. She had spent a wonderful morning catching up on all the local gossip at the river by the bridge and, having enjoyed a large lunch of fish eggs and duckweed, was now feeling rather full. I think I'll take a long waddle back to the abbey. Quack, 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 she quacked to the others, who were busy preening themselves on the sunny bank. I need to work off this food, and besides, I think I have an egg coming. Quack, 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 quack. She stood up, happily bobbing her head up and down as she said goodbye to her friends and waddled off. Waddle, 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 hick, she quacked as she moved across the grass. Waddle, 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 hick, she quacked as she came to the road. Waddle, 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 hick, she quacked as she headed into the village. It was a good long walk to the abbey, which she was thoroughly enjoying, apart from the hiccups. Normally, she would fly back to her nest. Today, however, she was mindful of the egg inside her, so she walked carefully, squeezing her legs together to make sure it stayed where it was until she reached home. As she waddled along the lane that led to the abbey, she felt that her hiccups had passed and began to quack joyfully with relief. Almost home, she thought. She reached the corner of the abbey and was just waddling past the entrance to the old cellar when a final hiccup took her by surprise. Waddle, 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 hick! And this time as she hiccuped, a tiny feather flew up and landed on her beak. Ah! 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 She squeaked. As she did, the egg she had been holding carefully inside her body popped out. Oops! quacked Doris. Her egg rolled onto the top step of the stone stairs which led into the abbey cellar. There it remained for a moment, gently rocking on the very edge. Doris turned to look at her egg. She scurried towards it, but just as she was about to reach it with her beak, a gust of wind whistled round the corner and sent it toppling forwards, bumping down the stone steps. Bump, 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 bump. It went down the steps and into the darkness of the old cellar where it landed, miraculously unbroken in the blackness and the cold of that dark, damp place which no one ever visited. Doris stared down into the darkness. She couldn't see her egg anymore. It was like it had vanished. She felt a pang of sadness for its loss. She had been excited about adding another egg to this year's clutch in her nest. But Doris was a practical duck and besides, she was used to eggs being taken by foxes or eaten by crows and now this one had disappeared. She stood, leaning into the darkness for a few moments more. Then she turned around and, with the sad shrug of her feathers, she thought, No matter! I'll lay another one tomorrow. And off she went. Waddle, 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 hick. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the cellar, the egg remained at rest in the blackness. The air was thick and putrid, and the only noise came from the drip of the damp from the ceiling into the cold puddles on the stone floor. Suddenly, 
in the blackest corner of all, two round eyes flicked open, golden eyes striped with black, like the thin mask of a bandit. The eyes flicked towards the steps, then back to the egg. They blinked, then moved out of the darkness, revealing a huge cavernous mouth. Quark, 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 went the mouth as the creature slowly crawled forwards. It was a toad, an old, warty toad who had spent more time than she cared to think about living alone in that dark, damp place. The toad liked the look of the egg. The toad thought she would like to sit on the egg and wait to see what would happen. So that is what she did. As the toad sat quietly on top of the egg, eyes closed in calm contemplation, Inside the egg, something magical was beginning to happen. A rare and miraculous consequence that can only occur when a toad sits on an egg, and only made possible now by the strange coincidence of the day's events. The silky smooth whiteness of the shell did not betray the dark business happening inside, as one cell became two, then four, then eight, and so on all the time fizzing and popping with a strange electricity as a tiny dragon-like beast began to form. A cockatrice, with the head and legs of a cockerel and the body and tail of a serpent. Its sharp claws and hideous beak scratched the inside of the egg as its feathers and scales began to form over its wrinkly grey skin. Months went by, and there the toad stayed on top of the egg, hardly moving an inch, apart from the flick of her long tongue to catch the occasional bug crawling by, to keep herself alive. Then one night, when the moon was full and red, the egg began to split. It ripped and cracked as the tiny cockatrice pulled itself out, the creature was a pitiful sight, all wet and sticky. But its clawed feet were huge, and when it opened its beak, it let out a terrifying screech, a warning of what was to come. Straight away, the toad jumped into action. It dutifully collected bugs and woodlice, worms and spiders and any other creepy crawlies it could find to feed the ravenous cockatrice, who eagerly ate them all up. Its hunger never ceased, and over the next few days it grew bigger and bigger until it was the size of a small hound, at which point it ate the toad with one big gulp, which seemed a bit rude. Then it walked up the steps, away from the dark and out into the sunset. It stretched its feathered wings for the first time and flew into the sky. No one noticed the small cockatrice on that first outing as it flew quietly like a dark shadow over the cow meadows. It feasted on rabbits and dived into the cool water of the river to catch trout and then, when it had had its fill, it flew back into its dark, damp hiding place in the abandoned cellar below the abbey. The cockatrice continued in this way over the next few weeks, coming out of its hiding place at sunset when everyone was snuggled up inside their houses. 
It got bigger and bigger and started to eat bigger and bigger things like the cows in the cow meadow. The cows did not seem to notice when they were snatched up in the cockatrice's claws with their legs dangling and casually chewing grass as they were taken away. But the villagers did become suspicious as their livestock disappeared and sightings of a giant bird were discussed. Now up to this point, the nuns in the abbey had been completely unaware of their new house guest. But now the cockatrice had grown to the size of a large shire horse, it had become very noisy indeed. And every time it squeezed itself through the doorway of the cellar, it grumbled and moaned, making the very foundations of the abbey shudder. One morning, the abbess organised an emergency meeting in the cloister. We need to investigate, she declared. And so they did. Huddling round the entrance of the cellar, the nuns peered down the steps. There was a terrible smell. Holding the end of her nose and breathing in through her mouth so she could not smell the terrible smell, the abbess bravely tiptoed down the steps, only to run up moments later being chased by the cockatrice. Shocked to see such a terrifying beast emerging from the cellar, all the nuns ran as well, zigzagging across the lawn like panicking pheasants. Unfortunately, this turned out to be a mistake. The cockatrice, who was now circling above them, thought they were just tasty appetisers and ate two of them up before squeezing back into his cellar to have a little nap. As you can imagine, it did not go down well in the village that the cockatrice had now eaten a couple of nuns, so the bishop was called to sort it out. Sadly for the bishop, he was rather a pompous man. I will go into the cellar and demand it to stop he declared as he strode down the steps, round-bellied and stiff-faced, holding the wooden crucifix he wore around his neck. There was a noise of a scuffle, a loud burp, and the bishop was never seen again. Enough is enough, declared the abbess. Send message to every corner of the kingdom that I will issue a reward of four acres of land to anyone who can kill the beast soon the abbey lawn and the cow meadows were full of little tents assembled by stewards of the many knights who had come from near and far brandishing swords wearing armour ready to fight. Whirlwell suddenly became the go-to destination for all the knights who wanted to prove themselves braver than brave. The village had a festival atmosphere. Huge Hog roasts were supplied by the abbey in honour of their guests and everyone felt hopeful that the cockatrice would soon be slain. But things did not quite work out as they had all hoped and, sadly, the final result was always the same. The brave knight would always walk down the steps into the cellar, flourishing his sword. There would be the noise of a scuffle, followed by a burp, and he would never be seen again. All seemed hopeless. Then one day, a local man named Samuel Green was washing up in the kitchen of the abbey when he was suddenly struck with an excellent idea. He had been drying a huge silver serving plate which had been used the evening before. 
It was the largest serving plate in the Abbey, long enough to fit a whole hog roast laid on its side and always had to be carried by two servants holding a handle each. As Green polished it, he noticed the metal was so shiny he could see his own reflection, like a giant full-length mirror. He looked at himself in the serving dish, then at the two sturdy handles at each end, and began to formulate a plan. Feeling confident his plan would work, he put the serving dish away, cleaned himself up so he was presentable, and ran to the abbess. If you will let me use the silver serving plate, Reverend Mother, I will kill the cockatrice for you, he announced. The abbess doubted this kitchen hand would be able to succeed where so many noble knights had failed, but feeling at her wit's end, she allowed him to dry. Pot scrubbers were easy to replace, she thought. Thanking her kindly, Green set off to fetch the silver serving plate and a large sturdy lamp that would be able to withstand a storm. He took them to the courtyard by the entrance to the cellar, borrowed a spear from an amused knight who was sitting close by on a barrel and set to work. He could hear the cockatrice breathing heavily as it slept off a particularly large breakfast of two knights and a stray dog. So, quietly as possible, Green buffed and polished the silver plate until it gleamed. Once he was satisfied, he cautiously crept down the steps, making sure he was hidden behind the mirror, and silently pushed it upright, wedging its handles tightly between the low ceiling and the floor. Then Green crept back up the stairs, picked up his storm lamp, lit the candle inside and lowered it down to create some light. As soon as the lamp was in position and the light shone onto the surface of the silver serving plate, it began to bounce about the darkness, creating a warm glow in the cellar for the first time ever. The cockatrice sensed the glow on its thin eyelids and, feeling threatened, it opened them. It looked straight towards the mirror and saw its own reflection looking back. Mistaking it for another cockatrice, it furiously ran towards the mirror and tried to fight itself. Of course, the reflection just fought back. The cockatrice raised its claws to slash and rip its foe, but the reflection just slashed and ripped back. The cockatrice then lifted itself into the air and flew forwards, trying to bite it with its huge beak, but the reflection just did the same. All day the cockatrice battled its own reflection, all day until it was completely exhausted and collapsed. At which point, Green calmly walked down the steps, sidestepping the silver serving plate and killed the cockatrice with the spear. Clever old Green had used his head and succeeded where so many knights had failed. The good news spread quickly around the village until the courtyard was crowded with villagers, nuns and knights all eager to congratulate him. Then two burly knights who had been watching his endeavours all morning hoisted him onto their shoulders and shouted, 
three cheers for Samuel Green. Hip hip hooray! Hip hip hooray! Hip hip hooray! Samuel Green's life changed dramatically after that moment and just as he was promised, he was rewarded four acres of land in nearby Harewood Forest, which he was incredibly pleased with. Over time, he built himself a little house and became a blacksmith. His work was highly sought after due to the wonderful shine he was able to create on the surface of the metal. And while he still liked to do his own washing up, he never had to wash up for anyone else ever again. And to this day, there is still an acre of land in Harewood Forest called Green's Acres. So that was my version of the famous Whirlwell Cockatrice story. I think it's great we have a real dragon legend here in Tess Valley, and you can still find cockatrices in Whirlwell. Luckily not marauding around and eating people, but the cockatrice emblem can still be found on all sorts of things in the village, including the village primary school uniform. And if you go down Mill Lane and have a look around, you may see one there. I'll give you a clue. It's on a roof. Now, there used to be a cockatrice weather vane on the roof of the church of St Peter and Holy Cross in Whirlwell. It's now in the Andover Museum. I had heard lots of stories about it, so I was thrilled to be able to talk to Kenton Clark Williams at the museum. He was able to tell me lots of fascinating facts about the weather vane and how the cockatrice links to the history of Whirlwell. So here I am at the Andover Museum and I'm here to meet Kenton Clark Williams who is going to tell me all about the Whirlwell Cockatrice and I'm coming into this fabulous room here and as you can hear the music Ooh, it's, it's brilliant in here. Kenton, it's so lovely to see you today. Thank you so much for meeting me. Well, thank you for coming in. It's lovely to see you. Thank you. We're standing in front of um, an exhibit and it is the weather vane from Whirlwell. Yes. But this isn't any old weather vane, is it? No. This is a very, very special weather vane. So I'm hoping, Kenton, you'll be able to tell me a little bit about the weather vane and, um, well, what is it, first of all? Well, here we've got the weather vane from uh, St Peter and Holy Cross Church in Whirlwell, and it is a depiction of the Whirlwell cockatrice. Um, it dates probably to around about the sort of uh, mid to late uh, 1800s when the church was rebuilt. Yeah. Uh, made of iron, and sort of it can be. It does look a bit damaged, and obviously there yeah, are stories. Yeah, I can see there's, it's, there's a bit of damage. I mean, his legs look a little bit damaged, but there's a, a hole in the middle. Well, there are stories locally that I believe it was an American soldier, a GI, uh, took a shot at it just after the <laughs> Second World War <laughs> and potentially pilfered some of the... Um, stone cannonballs which were found locally around the priory in the manor house. I wonder what you did with them, they'd be quite heavy. They would, yeah, you know, you wouldn't want to take that back in your hand, like, would you? I think it would get found. So he obviously had a little bit of, of time on his hands. 
Um, well, I can see why he'd want to take a shot at it, at it, because it's, well, it's quite remarkable. It's, well, as you say, it's made out of iron. And, well, how, how big do you think it is? It's about, about a foot long by about nine inches high. Yeah, it's a wonderful looking thing. And it's flat and it's, well, kind of black. It's feet as well. They look like they might have been replaced more recently. Yes, that does look the case. They sort of look to be possibly made out of brass in places, actually. Oh, I see, yeah. So it's got that typical cockatrice head. So it's got the head of a cockerel. Well... It kind of looks like a cockerel. It sort of looks slightly dragon-like to me, but it it's does, supposed then. to be a cockerel. Yes. And it's got some wonderful wings, and then its tail curls round at the ends, so it's got a serpent's tail. But we know it's a cockerel because it has two very um, cockerel-looking feet there, hasn't it, with its legs? Yes. Um, and they put it on top of the church, but it's not a religious um, symbol. So um, has it got any links with anywhere else. Um, I don't know why it would be put on top of a, a church, apart from the fact that I suppose it's a, a local legend. Local legends. I mean, cockatrices were quite a popular thing, and, and you know, there are stories about them from all across sort of Europe. Um, Shakespeare loved his cockatrices as well. There's quite a few references to cockatrices in several of his plays. Right. Three that, I, that I'm aware of. In uh, Richard III, uh, the Duchess of York actually compares her son Richard to a cockatrice. Oh, really? Uh, in the Folian way. Oh, ill-dispersing wind of misery, oh, my accursed room, the bed of death, a cockatrice uh, hast thou hatched to the world whose unavoided, unavoided eye is murderous. <laughs> yes, because they are the very vicious things. Because can't they kill people with their stare? Yes, that, that's as the leg, as so the legend goes, similar to a sort of a basilisk or the sort of gorgons of Greek mythology. That sort of piercing stare that either kills people, turns people to stone, depending on the uh, sort of the, the, le- the, ind- the individual legend, really. Right. Um, and many different versions of the legend around world cockatrice. I've heard about three or four or five different versions. And of course, one of my favourite ones is, of course, from the book. I do. Oh, thank you. You've read the book. Thank you. I have. <laughs> thank you very much. Because um, I know you tell the story here, but you said that you tell it in a slightly more gory way. You like to kind of... We do, yeah. yes. Uh, especially uh, uh, for special occasions. Uh, we do a museum by torchlight in October. We turn off all the lights in the museum and we tell scary stories. Oh, so, so it's that quite one a popular one for that one. Yeah. But it was originally known as a basilisk. I think I just heard you say a, a basilisk. And yes. Are they the same thing, a basilisk and a cockatrice? Um, certainly the depictions are very similar. Um, the basilisk we get really from uh, some of the early translations of the Book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. Right. Um, but the word cockatrice actually, where that starts to come in is actually during... Uh, the sort of late 14th century in John Wycliffe's translation of the Bible where he translates it as cockatrice and that's right. kind of where we get the word from. Uh, so it's an ancient really ancient yeah, word it's, it's, it's quite an old word yes wow. and uh, he uses it to translate the meaning of the same creature um, but sometimes you know they're just called uh, the translation from the Bible you have basilisk you have cockatrice adder 
or just a snake in general, or just a, some kind of serpentine creature. Yeah. I think it's become popular again with Harry Potter, hasn't it? I think oh, yes, have, the basilisks. Yeah, the, yes. the basilisks. So Absolutely. I think, yeah, this is a, a great one. I think it really captures people's imaginations. Um, and the fact that we've got a cockatrice, a local cockatrice here, which people can go and, and see and, and um, learn about, I, th- I think it's actually really exciting. In Whirlwell... There are lots of cockatrices mm. around on top of buildings and they seem to have embraced it as a symbol of the, the village. Um, but I read somewhere that actually they, there is a lot of folklore surrounding it. And um, up until the 1930s, was it people in the village wouldn't eat duck eggs? Have you, have you I've heard, heard that, that? rumour as well, yes. There's a few sort of... Uh books written about the history of sort of the abbey which sort of allude to that uh, uh, allude to that yeah that's quite an unusual um, thing to happen of course in the World War uh, story it is as you've mentioned in your book it's a duck which is uh, supposed to have hatched the, yeah uh, if it comes from a duck egg rather than a cockerel um, so yeah, yeah yes I have seen stories actually when they write to say it's actually from a, a hen's egg but I kind of like the idea because there's so many ducks in world absolutely and the, just because i'd read this um this curious thing about people not eating duck eggs i thought it'd be you know too fun to stick to that version of it um but the story itself so this was found on top of the church yes and the church has got links though with the priory it does um how how do the two things link well it sort of goes Again, even further back than the uh, the origin of or, or the origin of the, of the cockatrice, it goes back to the late mid to late tenth century AD. So at the sort of late towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, right? And uh, both the abbey and the church were found uh, or founded by Queen Ethelda, um, who was the widow of King Edgar. Yes, I know Elfrida. Yes, okay, this is great. So tell tell us a little bit about um, the link then with her, with her. So it's all to do probably with that story with right. uh, the uh, the dead man's plaque in yeah. uh, Harewood Forest, and uh, she goes. She sort of it, it's believed that she probably founded the Abbey to atone for her personal crimes right because of that obviously don't want to spoil that tale too much because yeah. that's a fantastic tale and both a, a historical tale and a historical tale that's probably been like quite a few tales from that period quite heavily embellished over time as yes. well um but yeah she finds the she found the abbey at the end of the 10th century is st peter's the original church then or was that rebuilt yeah it's been sort of rebuilt over over time um bits of the abbey and the church were quite badly damaged uh during the um dissolution of the monasteries by king henry VIII. Oh right um in fact actually the abbey was actually damaged previously during the um uh, during the wars between Empress Matilda and King Stephen, it was almost burnt to the ground during that time uh, in the uh, in the 12th century when uh, wow. Empress Matilda had stationed some of her men there, and uh, Stephen actually set fire to the abbey as a way of trying to either kill them or, or draw them out. The actual abbey wasn't actually lo- really located uh, until really the 1970s, when a geophysical survey by the University of Southampton. 
uh, found the foundations of the abbey in the ground of the modern manor house there. Wow, so a lot of this history has been discovered quite recently. Then. Absolutely, yeah. Oh gosh, that's um, amazing. So you had historical references and we know that something was there, didn't exactly know where. Wow. Um, obviously there was some local knowledge and there were speculation, but actual confirmed evidence really didn't come until the 1970s. I see. So... Wormwell's got quite a, um, a violent history, what with cockatrices and oh, burnings and gosh, all sorts of stuff going on. Um, well, I think that's almost probably all that we have got time for today. Um, but people can come and look at this, um, the cockatrice weather vane um, at the Andover Museum. Uh, it's, well, it's just in this, this wonderful room um, up here. So what... what is the Andover Museum free to come Absolutely. to? Absolutely, free, free to come to and it's currently open Wednesday to Sunday, 10 till 4. So people want to come and look at the, um, the weather vane, which is very impressive. They can do that themselves. So, Kenton, I think it would be fun, if you've got time, if we could wander down the high street, because I'm also aware in the time ring there's another cockatrice there is there is shall we go down and have a, a quick look and maybe you could tell me a little bit more about the history of of some of the other things we can see in that absolutely okay that would be brilliant thank you so much for meeting me today and thank you telling me all this fascinating information right goodbye cockatrice <laughs> come on kenton let's, let's go. go let's go and let's go and have a little wonder I really recommend going to the Andover Museum. They have some brilliant stuff there. Now, we have an extra something to finish this episode. I think you're going to like it. You see, back in 1995, Whirlwell Primary School was involved with an exciting project called My Village, Your Village, organised by musician Roger Watson in collaboration with Chilean musician Mauricio Venegas Astorga. The song I am about to play you is one of the songs which was written by the children of Whirlwell School for the project. It's a wonderful fusion of English and Chilean folk traditions. Now this song could have been lost to time, was it not for Sheena Smith? who was the music teacher at Whirlwell when the project happened. Luckily, Sheena still had a recording of it and has kindly let me use it for this Test Valley Tales episode. It was recorded on cassette, and for anyone listening under the age of 16, a cassette tape is like a CD, but not as long-lasting. And so, being a cassette recording, the quality isn't great, but I still think you'll enjoy it. It's all about the story of the Whirlwell Cockatrice. And just as an added note, you may well notice that it's what Paul Sartan used as his inspiration for this episode's theme music. So here it is, the Whirlwell Cockatrice, sung by the children of Whirlwell Primary School. Thanks, Sheena.
Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the tale and the facts behind it as much as I enjoyed discovering them and writing the story. Thank you for listening. Test Valley Tales is an Arts Council-funded project and part of Test Valley Arts Foundation Borough of Culture Legacy Projects. You can find all sorts of project resources on my website at www.merry-go-roundstorytelling.co.uk forward slash Test Valley Tales. There is a downloadable map with postcodes to find all the story locations, links to walks and craft activities. You can also buy the Tess Valley Tales illustrated book of short stories there. Tess Valley Tales is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as at Test Valley Tales. And this podcast can be found on Podbean at podbean.com forward slash Test Valley Tales. If you are interested in finding out about other types of storytelling I get up to, or you would like to book me for an event, you can email me at mgrstorytelling at gmail.com. I am on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter as at mgrstorytelling and Merry Go Round Storytelling on YouTube. I also have another storytelling podcast which can be found at podbean.com forward slash funny tales and fairy tales and all this information can be found on my website which is www.merry-go-roundstorytelling.co.uk happy storytelling and i look forward to telling you another tale soon